If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast, and it is all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. How's it going, everybody? My name is Christian Wagner, and I'm the Militant Thomist. So for this uh, stream, I'll be going over some more um, defenses of the Incarnation by St. Thomas Aquinas against Islam. If you remember, I did another stream a few days back. Uh, you can find that on my channel, doing sort of a part one of chapter five of this work by St. Thomas Aquinas, going through it and explaining it a bit. As you'll remember, uh, this is a very introductory work by St. Thomas Aquinas, meant for laymen. So this is going to take a, a bit less explanation on my part, and it'll be a bit quicker and a bit easier to read for yourself after, after this stream of me explaining a bit of the concepts. So before we get started, uh, remember to subscribe if you're new to the channel looked at my statistics 75 percent of you are not subscribed yet so that would help me a lot if you would subscribe um, even if you're not necessarily interested or a catholic i have a lot of stuff that is applicable for those of um, protestant persuasion orthodox persuasion even those who are muslim i have a few muslim subscribers that i am very grateful for and then also uh join the discord that should be in the description below and become a patron that really helps me out and then also i'm on facebook twitter and such if you just search militant thomist or my name which is christian b wagner so let's get right into it i will the link to the to the article to the section in thomas's work which is ratione's fide reasons for the faith is is found in the description but i will get right into it okay so the meaning of God became man, this is going to be a bit more pedagogical explaining what we mean by the incarnation from Muslim misunderstandings of what we mean by the incarnation. Okay. When we say God became man, let no one take this to mean that God was converted into a man as air becomes fire when it is turned into fire. So it is important to note that on the part of God's nature, that there isn't a conversion of his nature. It isn't a subtraction of godhood into manhood. For God's nature is unchangeable. So it would be quite silly if we were to say that God's nature is changing in the incarnation. Only bodily things can be changed from one thing to another. A spiritual nature cannot be changed into a bodily nature, but can be united to it somehow by strength of its power as a soul is united to the body. So first, notice... We are saying that it, rather than being a necessarily a change, 
it is a unity which is found in the person, not in the nature, due to taking within itself a new nature. And then he provides an analogy right here. And remember, when we have an analogy, there is what's called similitude and dissimilitude. But the main thrust of this analogy, it is, it is like our soul and our body being the two substances of our nature are united together, both a corporeal or physical um, reality, which is our body, and a incorporeal or immaterial or spiritual reality is in our body. Yet they're not mixed together. They both retain their proper attributes without being mixed together. Although human nature consists of soul and body, the soul is not bodily, but a spiritual nature. Note a spiritual and a physical or corporeal nature can both exist without a mix of the two. But the dispute between any spiritual creature and God's simplicity is much more than the distance between a bodily creature and the simplicity of a spiritual nature. Therefore, as a spiritual nature can be united to a body by the strength of its power, so God can be united to a spiritual or a bodily nature. And in that way, we can say that God was united to a human nature. And then notice, he's going to say that just as we have reason to say that a corporeal and incorporeal or a spiritual and physical nature are united, and that the soul has the power to uh, be united to the body, so also even more should we be able to admit that God, having omnipotence, has the power to take within himself, uh, within his person, not within his nature, a, another nature, which is the bodily nature. Well, it is the human nature, both body and soul. We should observe that everything seems most properly identified with what is principal in it. While other aspects seem to adhere to it, what is principal, and are taken up and used by it as it disposes. Thus, in civil society, the king seems to envelop the whole kingdom, and he uses other as he disposes, as it were, parts of his own body joined to him naturally. Although man is naturally both soul and body, he seems more principally a soul since his body adheres to it, and the soul uses the body to serve in its own activity. Likewise, therefore, in the union of God with a creature, the divinity is not dragged down to human nature, but the human nature is assumed by God not to be converted into God, but to adhere to God. Okay, so he's making another analogy. So just like the greater power uses the lesser power as an instrument, so is it not that the divinity is dragged down to the level of the humanity, but the humanity is assumed up into the very personhood of God, not into the nature of God, to the very personhood of God and used as its instrument. Who so is providing some proper definitions and distinctions, which we make in the incarnation. The body and soul thus assumed are somehow the body and soul of God himself, just as the parts of a body are assumed by a soul and are somehow are members of the soul itself. There is, however, a difference. Although the soul is more perfect than the body, it does not possess the total perfection of a human nature. Thus, it has a body so that the soul, the body and soul together form one human nature, of which the soul and body are parts. But God is perfect in his nature, and nothing can be added to the fullness of his nature. So another nature cannot be united to the divine nature, so as to make a common nature from them both. For it would be repugnant to the perfection of the divine nature to be part of that common nature. The word of God, therefore, assumed a human nature consisting of a soul and body in such a way that neither becomes the other, nor the two melted into one nature. But after being united, the two natures remain distinct, each with their own properties. So we see with um, the assumption of the, of the body by the soul to form the human nature, that the body, in a sense, is completing the perfection of the nature. 
But this is the dissimilitude that I tell you guys about, the thing that has to be denied about the analogy. Because when the human nature is taken up by the second person of the Trinity, it isn't to complete any imperfection in the nature, but rather they are um, they retain they remain uh, distinguished from one another. It should also be observed that since spiritual nature is united to a bodily one by spiritual power, the greater power of the spiritual nature is the more perfectly and firmly assumed assumes a lower nature. God's power is infinite with every creature subject to him, and he uses each as he wishes. He could not use them unless he were somehow united with them by strength of his power. The more he exercises his power on them, the more perfectly he is united with them. Among all creatures, he exercises his power by giving them existence and moving them to their proper operations. In this way, he is said to be in everything in a common way, but he exercises his power in a special way in holy minds, whom he is not only conserves them in existence and moves them in their actions like other creatures, but also converts them to know and love him. Thus he is said to dwell specially in holy minds, and holy minds are said to be full of God. So what he's doing now is he's he's starting another analogy for us. He is saying that um, all admit that there, in some way in the natural realm of things, God is said to be united to creatures in the fact that he upholds them in their common existence. And then also in the realm of grace and holy minds, that is in the conversion of the saints, so also is there an even greater exercise of God's power in uniting himself to us. So really, when you look at um, when you look at the various ways in which God's power is exercised, this uh, hypostatic union, it's called, this exercise of power wherein a bodily nature is taken up within the hypostasis or the, the person of the second person of the Trinity, it is just a different mode of exercising his power, which is the greater mode. And so also we see these tears in the common um, exercise of God's power, both in nature and in grace. And this is just the supreme exercise of his power in not only uniting himself after the way of upholding our existence, not only uniting himself to us as a way of sanctifying us and infusing the virtues, but now he is um, hypostatically unifying, which is the highest way in which a unity can happen without it falling into unreasonableness, which would be the unity of nature. That would be unreasonable. So since God is said to be more or less united to a creature according to the amount of power he exercises in it, it is clear that since the strength of divine power cannot be comprehended by the human intellect, God be united to a creature in a higher way than the human intellect can grasp. Therefore, we say that God united to a human nature in Christ in an incomprehensible and ineffable way, not only by indwelling it as is true with other saints, but in a singular way, so that a human nature belongs to the Son of God, and that the Son of God, who has from eternity a divine nature from the Father, from a point of time has wonderfully assumed a human nature of our race. Thus, each and every part of the human nature of the Son of God can be called God, Whatever any part of the, his human nature does or suffers can be attributed to the only begotten word of God. Thus we fittingly say that not just his soul and body are the Son of God, but also his eyes and hands. That the Son of God sees bodily with the sight of his eyes and hears by the hearing of his ears. And the same applies to the activities proper to the other parts of the solar body. Okay, that was a mouthful right there. So first, um, in the first place, he's going to draw the conclusion that I just made. That... Um, that we are able to, to in a certain way, comprehend how he upholds our existence by his power, and then in a further way, um, unites himself to the to, to holy men 
in the sanctification of their bodies, but also this tear can go even further up into a hypostatic union where God is united to a human nature in Christ in an incomprehensible and ineffable way. And that the, the son has wonderfully assumed a human nature of our race. And notice that um, he is not unite. He is not assuming a person or uniting to himself a person. And this unity is not in his nature, but rather it is the son of God in his person or in his hypostasis. And because of the fact that the human nature is assumed in the second person of the Trinity, so also can we say we can make these certain linguistic predicates that because this human nature is the human nature, which is united to the person of God. So can we say things like that the eyes, which are a part of the human nature are the eyes of God and that the ears, which are a part of the human nature are the ears of God and so on and so forth. We're not attributing this to the divine nature. That would be blasphemous and foolish. We are attributing, attributing this as a part of the activity or a part of the human nature. And we are saying because of this, because it's united to the hypostasis and it's properly the, therefore it is properly the eyes or ears or hearing or seeing of God. Okay. So there is no better comparison of this admirable union than union of a body and a rational soul. Again, we're going back to this analogy of body and soul making up parts of a nature. It is also a suitable comparison because our word remains hidden in our heart and becomes sensible by being vocalized and written. But these comparisons fall short of representing the union of the divine and human natures, just as any other comparison of human things with divine. Notice he's going to be very clear right here, and I want you guys to understand very clearly that these are just analogies. Do not take them too far or you will fall into heresy. That we need to make the proper negations and also the proper affirmations that we can come to some sort of uh, understanding of this, of this hypostatic union by uh, certain analogies. For the divinity is not united to a human nature as to be a part of a nature. Notice the divinity is not united to a human nature so as to be a part of a nature. Very important. There's not a union in nature. Nor is it united to a human nature as an expression, as the word of the heart is signified by voice or writing, but the Son of God truly has a human nature and can be called man. It is clear, therefore, that we do not say that say God is united to a bodily nature as a force in the body after a manner of material and bodily forces, because not even the intellect of a soul united to a body is a bodily power. Much less, therefore, is the word of God who assumed for himself a human nature in an ineffable, more sublime way. So we're not saying that the that the uh, human nature has for itself um, has for itself divine power because divine power uses it. Just in the same way, we don't say that the body has intellectual powers because the intellect uses because the soul uses the body. It is also clear from the foregoing that the Son of God has both a divine and human nature, the one from eternity and the other assumed at a point in time. Many things can be had by the same person in different ways. So notice this is not a contradiction because in different ways. This is very important. In order for a contradiction to be true, it would have to be in the same way. But the fact that Christ is a divine and a human nature are said in different ways. But the principal element is said to have, while the less principal element are had. Thus, the whole has many parts, 
as a man has hands and feet. We do not say the inverse, that hands and feet have a man. Likewise, one subject has many accidents, as an apple has color and smell, but not the inverse. Man also has exterior things like possession and clothing, but not the inverse. Only in the case of essential parts is something said both to have and to be had, as the soul has the body and the body has the soul. And in marriage, a man has a wife and a wife has a husband. In the same way, in the cases of things united by relationship, thus we say that a father has a son and a son has a father. Okay, this is a bit complicated right here. But this is a question of whether we can inverse the relationship. So I'm said to, let's say, I'm said to have my Jesus. Oh, sorry, Muslims. I'll turn this around. I'm said to have my Jesus candle. But my Jesus candle is not said to have me. Because this is not an inversible relationship. But I am also said to have a father. But And then I'm also said to inverse this relationship in that my father has a son, which is me. Okay. So were God united to a human nature as a soul to a body, so as to make one common nature, we could say that God has a human nature and that a human nature has God, just as a soul has a body in the inverse. But because the divine and human natures cannot be made one nature because of the divine perfection as said above, because the principal factor in the in union is on the side of God, it clearly follows that we must say that God has a human nature. But we don't say that a human nature has God. This isn't a this is an in, this isn't an inversible relationship right here between the father, between the son and the human nature. Okay. So whatever is said to exist by nature is called a subject or hypostasis of that nature. Just as what has the nature of a horse is called a hypostatic or subject of the horse nature. So notice this is, this is getting in the relationship between um, hypostasis or person and also of the nature. So the person is said to have a nature. The nature is not said to have the person. So really the, the person is the principle of the individualization of that nature. If you're getting what I'm getting, what I'm saying, and I'm also be taking Q and A after this. If you have any questions, or you need me to clarify, and then if you're watching this later, you can uh, comment questions, and I'm sure that I'll respond. So, in the case of an intellectual nature, such a hypostasis is called a person. Thus, we call Peter a person because he has a human nature which is intellectual. Since the Son of God, the only begotten Word of God, has assumed a human nature, as said above. It follows that he is a hypostasis, subject, or person with a human nature. So very important. The subjectivity and the fact that the, the word of God is the principle of the action of the human nature, the principle of existence, the principle of individualization, makes it the hypostasis, but the inverse is not true. So this is a much better um, view of person than... Um, you'll get from modern Christian philosophers who will say it's a center of consciousness, which would lead to a heretical view of person, a heretical view of Christology and the Trinity. And since he has a divine nature from eternity, not by the way of composition, but by simple identity, he is called a hypostasis or person of the divine nature. So naturally and eternally, second person of the Trinity is the hypostasis of the divine nature. But in time, in that he has assumed a, a second nature, which is the human nature, is also said to be the one principle of a second nature. As far as divine things can be expressed by human words, therefore the only begotten word of God is the hypostasis or person with two natures, divine and human, and he subsists in these two natures. And again, the a proper and well, 
An analogy which can be made to this is that of the soul and body. So your nature is not divided in two because it's contained of two substances, one immaterial and another material, but this one nature can be the principle of two substances. But if anyone objects that human nature, even in Christ, is not accidental, but a substance, and not a universal substance, but a particular one, which is called a hypostasis, it would seem that Christ's human nature would be a hypostasis apart from the hypostasis of the Word of God, then in Christ there would be two hypostasises. The one who makes this objection should observe that not every particular substance is called a hypostasis, but only that which does not belong to something more principal. For instance, the hand of a man is a particular substance, but it's not called a hypostasis or a person because it belongs to, to a more principal substance, which is man. Otherwise, in every man, there would be many hypostases or persons as there are members or parts. Therefore, Christ's human nature is not accidental, but a substance, and it is not universal, but particular. Therefore, it cannot be called a hypostasis because, because it is assumed by something more principal, namely the word of God. And this is an objection you'll get a lot from Muslims. They say you have the human nature of Christ. Is it individual? Yes. Is it a substance? Yes. Then it must be an individual substance of a rational nature. But we make this distinction when it comes to defining what it means to be a hypostasis or a person. That that um, there's not something more principal. Because for example, your hand, that is an individual substance, but there's something more principal, there's a more principal substance, which is the human body. Therefore, the hand alone cannot be called a hypostasis because there's the fact that it has a preceding principle um, before it. And the fact that it is dependent on the whole. Is also very important. That's more scotus than it is. It's too much longer. This is a pretty long chapter. Oh. Therefore, Christ is one because of the unity of his person or hypostasis. And he cannot be called two. Rather, he is properly said to have two natures. Although the divine nature can be predicated of the hypostasis of Christ, which is the hypostasis of the word of God, which is his essence, nevertheless, human nature cannot be predicated of him abstractly just as it cannot in the case of anyone having a human nature, just as we cannot say that Peter is human nature, but, but is a man having a human nature. So we cannot say the word of God is human nature, but that it has taken on a human nature. And for this reason can be called man. Therefore, each nature is predicated of the word of God, but the human nature only concretely, as when we say that the son of God is a man, but the divine nature can be predicated both abstractly and concretely. Thus, the word of God is the divine essence or nature and is God. And this is just getting from the fact that um, Christ has not taken the entirety of human nature within himself, but only a particular human nature. Whereas when we, we consider the divine nature, the divine nature is in its totality um, in the hypostasis of the word of God. But since God has a divine nature and man has a human nature, these two names signify the two natures that are had, but only one person has both of them. Since the one having the nature is a hypostasis, which we call Christ, God, we understand the hypostasis of the word of God. Likewise, when we call him man, we understand the word of God. So we call Christ God and man, but we do not say that he is two, but one in two natures. This is very important here. So the one having the human nature right there 
is the hypostasis of God. Therefore, we call him God, and then also the obviously, naturally, the hypostasis. By naturally, I mean eternally. The, um, the hypostasis of God has God, uh, God's nature. So he is called both God and man from the fact that he has two natures, but um, that is predicated to a single subject, which is important in defining what a person is. Okay, let's keep going. Whatever belongs to a nature can be attributed to the hypostasis of that nature. Well, the hypostasis of both a human and divine nature is supposed in a name signifying the divine nature as well as in a name signifying the human nature. This hypostasis is single, having both natures. Consequently, both human and divine things can be predicated by that hypostasis. Whether it is referenced to by a name signifying the divine nature or by a name signifying the human nature. Again, linguistically, when we talk about the subject of a thing, we're talking about the hypostasis of that thing. Like, for example, I say, I, I burn myself and I only burn my hand. Since it's just a particular substance that is my hand, I'm rather predicating it to my hypostasis. I don't predicate it to my nature. That's not how we talk. Thus, we can say that God, the word of God, was conceived and born of the virgin. Suffered, died, and buried, attributing the hypostasis of the word human things because of the human nature. So because the hypostasis or the person has a human nature now, we can speak um, of God dying, God suffering, God being born, and the like. Inversely, we can say that man is one with the Father, that he is from eternity, and that he has created the word world because of the divine nature. So in predicating such diverse things of Christ, a distinction can be made according to which nature they are predicated. So even though the subject is one, we can still make a distinction. So it, back to our example of the soul and body, if I said, if I, my hand got stabbed, I would say that I got stabbed, but I can particularize that statement and say, I got stabbed according to my bodily substance. Or if um, I thought, I can say I thought, but I thought according to my intellectual substance, which is my soul. Some things are said according to his human nature, while other things to his divine nature. But if we consider whom they are said about, they aptly they apply indistinctly, since it is the same hypostasis of which divine and human things are said. It is like saying that the same man sees and hears, but not according to the same power. He sees with his eyes and hears with his ears. So I let's say, for example, I say that I see, I hear. I'm, I, I'm that is um, an action of a particular uh, corporeal organ, sense organ, which is my eyes and my ears, but I can still predicate it to myself because when it comes to the subject of those actions, it is me seeing and hearing through my corporeal organs. Just as it is when God dies, God is dying in accordance with, uh, with his human nature. Likewise, the same apple is seen and smelt, in the first case by its color, in the second by its smell. For this reason, we can say that a seeing person hears and that a hearing person sees, and that what is seen is smelt and what is smelt is seen. Similarly, we can say that God is born of the virgin because of his human nature, and that man is eternal because of the divine nature. Okay. And I'll get into this next one about the meaning of the word of God suffer because this is going to get into uh, predications a bit more, but this was a bit long, actually. Looks like I have a question in the chat. Oh, 
he was James was just saying greetings. Greetings, James. Glad to have you here. Okay, that's all I have for you right now. Um, if you have any suggestions for future streams, you can um, email me. If you do it that way, at apologiaanglicana at gmail.com. And no, I haven't switched the email yet. Everything is attached to that, so I'm going to keep it. And also, uh, if you join my Discord, I'm sure you can ask me there. Um, if you reach out to me and DM me on Twitter, comment on one of my videos, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there are many ways you can reach me. Make sure you become a patron and God bless.